some time here at Kent, but it's been about three and a half years since I've been here, except last year I was here for Presbytery, but most of you, of course, were not. I'm a retired minister in the OPC, and presently is serving as moderator of the Presbytery, but I've notified them this coming meeting will be my last. I've done it for quite a while, and I'm retired, so I'm going to retire from that for a while. Uh, some of you may be in interested to know that uh, when I was in Grand Rapids, Michigan, pastoring our church there, late 80s, early 90s, the Denison family were members of my church. But I didn't see Bill that much because he was studying for his doctorate degree at Michigan State, and also on Sunday mornings, as well as Sunday evenings, he often was preaching in other churches, particularly Christian Reformed Church and, and churches of that type. So uh, he occasionally would, would preach for me, and now here I am in the province of the Lord preaching for him while he's on vacation. So I do bring you greetings from uh, myself and my wife in uh, Medford, and good to be back here with you in, in Kent. I've been asked to make one announcement that the church picnic is this coming Saturday. Take note of that, 10 to 2 at Covington Community Park. Please sign up at the back table. You'll probably remember to do that if you have not done so already. There are other announcements in your bulletin page there. So we're gathered here this morning to worship the Lord our God, creator of all things, our Redeemer, our Savior, our Deliverer, and it's a privilege for us to do that. So let's take a moment of silent meditation, and then we'll proceed with uh, the order of the service. Psalm 34 was written by David uh, on the, reflecting on the incident he had in, recorded in 1 Samuel 21, where he had to protect, pretend he was insane to escape from a very dangerous situation. As he re realizes that it wasn't his good job of faking to be sane, but the fact the Lord delivered him. So he reflects on that, and the first two verses of Psalm 34 uh, are David's personal praise to the Lord. Then the third verse, he exhorts others to join with him in that praise, even as he would do that for us today. Here then the first three verses, Psalm 34, for our call to worship. David writes, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul makes his boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. Oh, magnify the Lord with me. And let us exalt his name together. And let us do that now as we turn to hymn number 167, when morning gilds the skies. That word gilds means golden. So we think of a sunrise often gives a golden hue in the morning. At the end of each stanza, you see the phrase, may Jesus Christ be praised. The words were by an anonymous author, first appearing way back in 1828, but the words remind us of our praise to God that it should not be limited to church services like this, but should be part of our life all the time, especially beginning in the morning as we awake. To this wonderful tune, let us join our voices. 167, please stand as you sing, When Morning Gilds the Skies.
as I lead us aloud in prayer. Our Father in heaven, we call upon thee through Jesus Christ, our Savior and our Lord. Because of him, we are able to come directly into your presence. We need not offer animal sacrifices or sacrifices of any other kind. We simply look to Jesus and recognize him as our great high priest who represents us. And as we trust in him, we are clothed in his righteousness, and you are pleased to accept us. So, Father, grant to us this day as we meet here to worship you that your presence might be in our hearts, that we might be encouraged and strengthened in our Christian walk. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. I'm going to read for you in just a few moments from Ephesians 4, verses 22 through 32. Paul begins by speaking about putting off and putting on. Put off the old clothes you Ephesians used to wear when you were not believers. You now have new clothes in Jesus. Put on those kind of clothes and wear them and continue to wear them. So verse 25, he says, therefore, at that point, Paul begins to exhort and challenge them to keep that new lifestyle going. But he says, don't just say, no, I'm not going to do that anymore. If you're not going to do that, what are you going to do in its place? And you'll notice that that's how he handles this. So as I read these verses, be asking yourself, how have I been doing this? As we look at God's will revealed in this passage of Scripture, Ephesians 4, 22 through 32. So put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires. And be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Therefore... Having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. Give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. Let's take a few moments of personal confession of our sins, and then I shall lead us in a prayer of confession.
Our Father in heaven, as we consider a passage from the Bible such as we have heard, we are reminded of how far short we continue to fall of your glory. By your Holy Spirit, those of us who are your children realize that you do give us victory over sin. You enable us to have that love and desire to follow the paths of righteousness, and yet time and time again, we see how far short we fall. And so we come as individuals, families, this church, to confess to you that we indeed are unworthy in ourselves, to acknowledge our sins, but also to seek your forgiveness, your pardon of those sins for the sake of Jesus, who gave his life, that we might make that request. We ask that you would remove them from us in your sight, that you would fill us with a love to follow that which pleases you. We thank you for the privilege we have to bring these needs to you, knowing that you will build us up in the faith and help us to grow in our Christian walk. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, we pray. Amen. For assurance of pardon, I'd like to read from Psalm 65, a few verses there. The word atone appears... It's the key word. We speak of the atonement, capital A. The atonement refers to the work of Jesus in giving his sacrificial, sacrificial life for us. We are enabled to praise God and worship because he is a forgiving God who covers our sin. That's the idea of atonement, covering the sins. All right? So let me read the first four verses of Psalm 65. Praise is due to you. O God, in Zion, and to you shall vows be performed. O you who hear prayer, to you shall all flesh come. When iniquities prevail against me, you atone for our transgressions. Blessed is the one you choose and bring near to dwell in your courts. A great privilege we have indeed to do that. Our next hymn this morning is number 172, Let Us Love and Sing and Wonder. In his amazing grace hymn, which all of us I'm sure are familiar with, uh, John Newton uses the phrase that saved a wretch like me. That's a very strong word, isn't it? I don't think we use that very much in our daily vocabulary. Uh, That was a wretched thing to do. I feel like I'm a wretch. But John Newton had no problem saying that because indeed he had been a wretch a very terrible sinner, a slave owner. But he knew of the blood of Christ's grace. This hymn was written in his later years when he was a renowned preacher of the gospel. And it's very rich in theology and biblical images, of several poetical rhymes that go through this. The law shouts, you're not good enough. But grace shouts, by the blood of Christ, justice smiles and asks no more. So let us, this morning, as we sing this, love and sing and wonder and praise the Savior's name. You may remain seated as you sing 172.
As I uh, lead us in prayer for the church, I'm going to be primarily using some of the prayer items that are mentioned in your bulletin, in addition to some general things that uh, I think all churches remember to pray for. So uh, pray along with me silently in your hearts as I lead us in our prayer. Father in heaven, how thankful we are for all you've done for us. We recognize you as the sovereign, all creator of all things, the one who brought us into existence, the one who in eternity past has reached into our time and brought us to yourself through Jesus and the Holy Spirit's power. We thank you, O Lord, that we live in a country in which we may worship you in freedom and peace. Thank you for the facility that has been provided for this congregation. We thank you for the health that we have who are here today who can come here and participate in joint worship with one another. And we remember those that are unable to be here for various physical reasons, distance reasons. Wherever they are, we bring them before your throne of grace and pray you would watch over them as, you would, as we pray you will continue to watch over us. We thank you for the ministry of, of Pastor Dennison in this place. We ask you to be with him, his wife, and his family as they have this time of rest and relaxation and bring him back safely to this congregation. We thank you, O Lord, for the work of the Orthodox Presbyterian Church, your faithfulness to our, our little denomination and how we have been able to reach out into the, the nation and into the world with your servants. May you bless each congregation. May we remain faithful to the word of God and make the gospel clearly set forth in our ministries. Father, we pray for one another, the needs that we have. We pray for our parents with little children still in the home, the great responsibility that is there, and the difficulties and challenges of doing that. We pray that you would give them the, the strength they need to, uh, be, uh, to honor you with their parental work and uh, responsibilities. All of us have certain requests that are in our hearts, certain needs that uh, sometimes we, we can't share them with anyone else except you. You know us so well. You know what we are going to pray for even before we pray it. Nevertheless, you have directed us to come before your throne of grace as we do now. Father, we reach out into the world and we remember the ministry in Uganda and Mabali in particular, we pray for Charles and Connie uh, Jackson, that uh, you would be with them, keep them safe from very dangerous uh, things. We pray, Lord, for more missionary evangelists for Mabali and also Karamoja. We thank you for the work in Puerto Rico, a new foreign mission field that's opened up for the OPC. Pray for Bradley and Eileen Lopez as they minister there. And as they desire that that church might become particularized and be a, a full-fledged congregation in our denomination. We ask you to add to their numbers, call your people to yourself in that area, and bring them to that place. We thank you for the ministry of Carl Thompson and down in Grants Pass, and ask you to be with him as he seeks to shepherd God's flock there. We ask that you would raise up men in that congregation for the ruling eldership, a, a real need in that particular church. We pray for the communion of the saints uh, that is so important we might take it for granted, but 
in this day and age especially, how good it is for us to remain closely tied to one another, even though geographically we may be scattered in the area. Nevertheless, we have that bond we have in Jesus. We ask, O oh Lord, that you be with uh, Kristen Trantham as she expects a, her child. Keep that uh, relationship strong and healthy. We pray that this uh, birth might go well when that time comes. And Lord, we also would remember uh, Jan Shreve, Ruth Ann Sorensen, and their needs, whatever they are, you know what they are. We pray that you would be very close to them this very day and accept our prayers on their behalf. Lord, again, we thank you for the nation in which we live. We pray for our leaders. We pray for those who represent us, and that among these people, you would raise up your own people to be good testimonies to the truth of the word of God and guide and direct them. We pray all these things in the name of Jesus, who taught us to pray together, saying, Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Amen. Hymn number 355 is our next song. The tune is to the last movement of Brahms Symphony Number no. 1 in C minor. Those of you who are interested in classical music, the, the author of the, of the words, Brian Leach, uh, came, I think that's who I'm talking about here, make sure, double check here. Yeah, Brian Leach. He uh, came to the United States from England in 1955, and on a very dreary July 4th, he, a Britisher, wrote these words. But he wasn't writing them on behalf of the nation of the United States. He was writing them on behalf of the church, we who are gathered here in the name of Christ today. So it wasn't to celebrate our independence, but to celebrate the people of God. Uh, terms used will be chosen of the Lord, bride of Christ, body which the Lord is head, temple of the Holy Spirit. What a blessing to be God's people to reflect something of his glory. 355, please stand as you sing uh, this wonderful hymn. We are God's people.
you may be seated. And I invite you to turn to Ephesians, book of Ephesians, chapter 3. I'm going to begin reading in verse 14 momentarily, but I call your attention to the fact that in the first 13 verses, Paul's been speaking about God's purpose in Christ for both Jews and Gentiles. This was something new in that age. Jews and Gentiles simply did not get together, but in Christ they're being brought together. He's writing in view of his own imprisonment as he writes this. But he writes to encourage the church in Ephesus in his words. And he goes on to write here at verse 14. I'm reading through uh, verse 21. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now, to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. As we move further and further into the 21st century, Things don't seem to be looking too good for the church. Most of you must be aware of at least three words that all begin with the letter A. One is attacks upon the church. Another is apathy toward the church. And the other is attendance at church, which is going down, 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 down. I recently ran across this quotation. I wish I had jotted down who was responsible for it. But it kind of sums up the attitude that's going on in our world today. To the unbelieving world, worship is just a bunch of foolishness. Sin? Who cares? Grace? Who needs it? Moral laws? I'll make up my own rules, thank you. Heaven? Hell? Come on. Nobody believes that stuff anymore. Right and wrong? Who knows? True or false? Who has the right to decide? Just be happy and don't hurt anyone else. And that's the kind of society that we're in today. So it does appear, let's be honest with ourselves, the church seems to have had it. Her glory days are fading away. However... Before you rush to that conclusion, let me share with you this morning for a few moments that there is indeed glory in the church. We're going to be looking at our text in particular in verse 21. 
first phrase that we meet is, to him be glory. Him is the amazing God of verse 20 that I just read for you, who's able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think according to the power at work within us. Paul breaks into a doxology here. In verses 14 to 19, he's requested a number of things on behalf of the Ephesians. And you almost wonder if Paul got carried away here a little bit. Quite a list that Paul asked for too much for God to bless that congregation. Well, his answer is verse 20 there. Ek persu is the Greek words. Far more abundantly. Jeffrey Wilson calls this an intensive superlative. What does that mean? It means that Paul was trying to say something, but he was having difficult putting it into words. Layman Strauss interprets it this way, or puts it in English this way. He is able to do all we ask or think, to do above all we ask or think. So then he comes to verse 21. To him be glory. Of course, we'd expect that. But what is glory? What do you mean by glory? It's a word we use quite a bit. Well, let me share some words that might help you grasp it here. How about the word brightness or light or beauty or symmetry, magnificence? It's all the remarkable attributes of the Lord that are revealed to us in the Word of God. Short catechism, what is God? God is the Spirit, infinite, eternal, unchangeable. It is being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. Quite a list. And that's not an exhaustive list. It's this essential being and character. And the shining display of that character that we read about in Exodus 34, when Moses went back up to the Mount Sinai at Lord's instructions to make a second set of the Ten Commandments. Remember, he had broken the first set in his anger against the worship of the golden calf. So he went back up there, and the Lord met in a very special way with Moses, so that when he came back down from the mountain, his face was shining, and the people could, could not look at it. So he had to put a veil over his face so he could minister to the people. That was the glory of the Lord. We think of John 1.14, where John writes, we, The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory. We decide, we were there, we saw it. We saw that glory, something revealing God himself. Mount Transfiguration, Peter, James, and John went up with the Lord. And when they came back down, their faces were glowing. So there's evidence there of the glory of God that it's something bright and shining and magnificent. We think of the glory of God as we look at creation. Psalm 19.1, the heavens declare the glory of God. Shout it out, the glory of God. There it is. Recently, we've seen some amazing photos of the new James Webb telescope that they put up further up than any other telescope. It's bringing back pictures of millions and millions of stars and galaxies. We're only beginning to get a grasp of how big the universe is. Well, that universe is shouting to people like us, I created it. I am here. I exist. You can see my glory in the stars 
the sun, the moon in particular for us. No wonder the 24 elders in Revelation 4 call out, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. Now, believers have no difficulty with that first phrase there, to him be glory. Of course. And if we were not Calvinists, and we were Pentecostalists, emotionalists in our worship, by now, in the last remarks I've been given, you'd be on your feet, you'd be applauding, I would hear hallelujahs, praise the Lord. Obviously, because you agree with that phrase. If you're in an Orthodox Presbyterian church, indeed, to Him be glory, and only to Him be glory. Until you come to the next phrase. To Him be glory in the church. The church. We miserable, finite, Simple people. Glory in us. How, wait a minute. Paul, what are you saying? This, this can't be. The phrase is surprising. For isn't the divine glory seriously limited by Paul saying something about sinful humans having this glory? We who make up the church. Don't the words in the church take away from what we've just been talking about. To him be glory. Nevertheless, there it is in the word of God. In some way, the church is the instrument by which God displays his glory. Even in little groups like Emmanuel Church here at Kent, even in other little small churches in our denomination, and we have many of them, Indeed, throughout the world, wherever Christians meet, most of them meet in small churches, not the big mega churches. They're scattered here and there as well. There are many of them. When they meet together in Bible studies, glory is in the church. When they meet together making plans for the future, the Lord's glory is being displayed. In fellowship gatherings, like a church picnic coming up, there's the glory of the Lord in the church. This phrase sets forth that glory very clearly. Each church is a theater, in a way, to display that glory. When you go to a theater, let's say a Broadway play, I've never been to one, but I've heard about them and seen photographs. You go and you sit in your seat, and up on the platform here, the, the, the stage, is this wonderful display of talent, of costumes, of background scenery, of music, whatever it is, and you are drawn to that. That's being imprinted upon your your memories, your brains, you're bringing it in. Do you realize that we are uniquely called, distinctly different, sublimely blessed to be the church? with the power of verse 20 implanted in us. But we still don't quite have an answer. How how could this be? How could God, holy God, display his glory in people like us? Well, let's go to the third phrase. 
To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus. And before we look, look closer at that phrase, this, another problem now develops. Look at the, the order here. First, he mentions the church, then Jesus Christ. And it's almost like they're on the same equal. Church, Christ Jesus. Church mentioned first before Christ. Shouldn't it be the other way around? I think Luther helps us out here. He translated this, To him be glory in the church, which is in Christ Jesus. And it's that word in that's important here to help you understand this text. That's why there's glory in the church, because the church is in Christ Jesus by faith. And faith alone. Paul uses this phrase many times as he begins this letter back in verse 1 to the saints who are at Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. And you go down the next several verses. In Christ, in him, with him. So at, the same, at this time, Christ Jesus is in the church. We are in him. We beheld, behold his glory, and then we acknowledge that glory and try to live in accordance with it. Back in chapter 1 of Ephesians again, at verse 22, turn back there for a moment. And he put all things under his feet, that is the Father to the Son, he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body. The fullness of him who fills all in all. Can we think of a human body functioning without a head? We can function without an arm, without a leg, without other bodily parts. It would be kind of hard to get along without your head. It's almost ridiculous. And yet, sometimes we live as though we don't have any head. Spiritually speaking, we forget about the Lord. We go our own selfish self-centered ways. But he's the head of the the church. This is all brought about by that divine power, which first of all brings us to conversion. Paul, in writing to the the church at Corinth, 2 Corinthians 4, 6, wrote, For God, who said, Let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of of Jesus Christ. I don't know when you were conversion. I'm not even converted. I'm not even sure when I was converted. We all have our own personal testimonies. Some of us, like myself, grew up in a church, and we don't really remember any day when we weren't aware of God. We weren't aware about Jesus, those things. But there had to come a time somewhere in my life where I had to make a, a decision and really make a difficult, a firm decision that I'm a sinner, I need Jesus, I trust in you, Jesus, to you have saved me from my sins. Some of you may have happened this in your teenage years, maybe later in your adult life. I don't know. You all have different stories. But however it was, it happened because the Lord brought you into Christ by faith. But then he builds us up. It's not just being converted and that's it. Sins forgiven, going to heaven, great. And go live however he wanted. We have to grow in our sanctification, our Christian life, our Christian walk, dying unto sin, living unto righteousness. 
So Paul deals with that over the wonderful chapter in chapter 5 of Ephesians, where he says, uh, beginning at verse 25, talking about the marriage relationship, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church, gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, in other words, make her holy, bring her along, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy without blemish. So indeed, God's glory does shine in the church, but it's a process as we become more and more like the Lord Jesus Christ. The bridegroom and his bride, the redeemed and the redeemer. Surely Christ's glory was displayed in his three, uh, 33 years on earth, particularly his last three years, as he gathered his disciples with him. They saw him. They heard him, they heard him teach, they heard him talk to, he talked to them. His whole life, certainly his death, his resurrection, his ascension. But he continues to display that glory, but in a different way, in the lives of his people. Especially in his gospel message. People are confronted with their sin before a holy God. They're, out, they're not in fellowship with him. The good news is that the Lord has given his son to pay the penalty we deserve. And all who trust in him by faith are brought into the church, into the kingdom of the Lord. Therefore, no matter how small or insignificant the church is to many, not only outside the church, but sometimes even inside the church, people have a tendency to maybe not think it's, it's such a great thing. They aren't satisfied with it. But there it is. It's the sphere of God's glory is manifested in the church. That should be a very comforting and encouraging thought to you who are believers, who are in the church, in the kingdom of the Lord. Think of it. The power of God Almighty in His Son, by the Spirit, dwells in your life. When you leave this place today, you go out through this week, He is with you. And he is prompting you, urging you to be more like Jesus and to turn away from your old, put off your old clothes. Remember the new clothes that you have been given. And so we come to the last phrase of our verse, Ephesians 4, 21. To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus Throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. Here's the capstone of the text. This is what Paul really wants to impress upon the Ephesians. But once again, Paul is at a loss for how to say it. Let me give you the Greek, the Greek here as I put it in English. Paul's saying here, that this glory in the church in Christ Jesus is unto all generations of the age of ages, or unto all the generations of the eternity of eternities. In other words, he's saying forever and forever and forever and forever and forever this is going to go on. How do I say that? You Ephesians, how can I get that across to you? 
So once again, he struggles for, for the words. But think of that. A flow of moments from the past into the present, into the future, into eternity. This means glory in the church this very day is influencing you in one way or another. Now, some of you might be thinking, oh, boy, I don't know. That return, sounds kind of boring. You know, praising God, singing around. What? What's it like? May I remind you again of the James Webb Telescope? We're down this little planet Earth. And that telescope is opening us the vastness of the universe. When Jesus returns, there's going to be the new heavens, new earth. Everything's going to be recreated and brought back the way it should be, including the universe out there. We still read about exploding stars and crashing planet, uh, asteroids and all kinds of stuff going on. Who knows what kind of problems are out there. And we have enough problems here. But one day that will be removed. Our heavenly existence will be of a different quality. Remember, we're going to be living without sin. The process has begun. In 2 Corinthians 3.18, uses the, Paul uses the phrase, one degree of glory to another. One degree of glory, another degree of glory, another one, another one. We're growing, we're growing. Sometimes we begin to fall down a little bit, but in the sanctification process, we should be gradually going up, up and down, up and down, up and down, but always upward by the power of the Spirit within us. Remember the hymn? When we've been there 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun, we've no less days to sing God's praise than when he first begun. I believe that the Lord's going to have a lot for us to do a lot of exciting things, adventuring, exploring the universe. We're not going to be bound by time, and certainly we're not going to be bothered by sin. You see, God has not um, established the church to display his glory so that we can erect great buildings. Now, this is a very nice building, no doubt about it. The Emmanuel Church has been blessed to be able to meet in a facility like this. We've been to another church where we walk in and say, wow, Tremendous. Wow, beautiful. We see churches on the outside, beautiful brick buildings, a wonderful spire, and so it's just what a wonderful thing. Not every church is like that, of course. But that's not why God displays his, how God displays his glory, not only through large buildings. Uh, he does not display his glory only through wonderful organizations, only through wonderful social gatherings, only by deeds of mercy and kindness. All these things are fine in themselves. Our primary goal, of course, always should be what? The glory of God. Man's chief end is what? To glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. Catechism number one. Our primary exhibit should be Him. Peter writes in 1 Peter 2.9, You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for His own possession, Sounds pretty good, doesn't it? The Lord is really honoring us, who we are in Christ. For what purpose? Peter goes on. That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Think of this, folks. The honor of Christ Jesus is in the hands of the church. 
Now we know that comes, we have to qualify that a little bit. Of course, the Lord is sovereign. He's controlling all things. He's directing the church. But in a certain way, he has said, here, church, here, take it. <laughs> I'm giving it to you to glorify me, to magnify my glory among your families, among your people you work with, your neighborhood, wherever you are. Remember to honor me. Remember, Paul was writing this in prison. And yet he could honor God even there. So even when insufficient or sufficient funds are not available, lack of equipment may be lacking, whatever the difficulty, even when virtually a church has seemingly nothing. I think to illustrate that, and I think to put a good illustration here toward the end of this message, I can think of no better way than the testimony of Dr. W.A. Criswell. For many, many years, he was the pastor of the First Baptist Church in Dallas, which is, I think at the time was the largest Protestant church in America. His church then had opportunity to sponsor many mission works, and Dr. Criswell was able to go on many of these visits. He said one of the most moving experiences of his life was an incident he described this way. In the heart of Africa, I preached one time in a leper settlement. Lepers, leprosy is a terrible disease that eats away at fingers and noses and ears, and you are really an outcast in your society. So they have to kind of meet, stay together, forsaken by everyone else. So he says, in the heart of Africa, I preached one time at a leper settlement where lepers had made their church house out of mud, M-U-D, mud. The pews were mud. The pulpit was mud. The pulpit stand was mud. And the, even the two little benches in the choir were made out of mud. Everything in that church was mud. But it was pretty mud. Because it was the best mud that they could contrive. And God honored the attempt of those poverty-stricken, sad lepers as they sought to build God a house. They did no less and their best. Talk about glory in the church. On that day, in that place, the glory of God shone its beauty and splendor in that little church in Africa. And that can be multiplied many, many times down through the years. Churches meeting in mud huts, in huts covered with branches, under trees, in tents, wherever you can find a place to meet together, in decrepit-looking churches, in houses. Our denomination started out that way in 1936. As people left their churches, they had to leave their, their pulpits, hymnals, books, everything, and start from scratch. And they met in places like that. And that's been going down, on down through the centuries. Oh, yes, the church today may be despised and mocked, hated, 
considering the church to be a little irrelevant thing. Who needs it? But that's not how the Lord sees her. What if there are any unbelievers here this morning who are not part of that glorious church? That the main emphasis of this message, this text, is interesting, but sort of irrelevant to me, my life. I really don't need it. Do you have difficulty even identifying with the church? I would urge you to seek the Lord Jesus Christ. Look into your life. Look into your heart. See how far short you fall of God's glory. And run to Christ in faith alone. You don't need to bring anything. Just yourself. Seek Him. But for you who are believers, and probably that's most of you here today, I hope you'll be encouraged to say to yourselves with Charles Haddon Spurgeon, Oh, my soul, adore him. Feel his splendor. Let his exceeding goodness shine full upon your soul and warm you with his rays. Let the warmth be adoring love. Oh, my soul, tell of his goodness. Reflect the light which falls upon you from himself. And so glorify him by manifesting to the sons of men what he manifests to you. Yes, my soul, let all that is within me bathe in his boundless goodness. And then glorify him by perpetual service. And it's in that way, with that attitude, that glory will be displayed at Emmanuel Church to the glory of God. Everything in that church was made out of mud. But it was pretty mud. Join me in prayer. Father, how thankful you are that you have brought us from darkness to light. That you have given us the ability by your grace to understand who we are, who Jesus is, and what he offers to us. May our trust be completely in him. And may we seek to honor the glory of God in our lives. Through Christ we pray. Amen. Our closing hymn is number 353. A wonderful song. The words by Timothy Dwight. Timothy Dwight was a brilliant scholar. The grandson of the famous Jonathan Edwards. He graduated from Yale at the age of 17 and began teaching there at the age of 19. Imagine that. Eventually, he became the president of Yale. This hymn was written during a very difficult time at the university, a time of great spiritual revival, helping to counteract the humanistic influence of the French Revolution. It's the earliest American hymn used regularly today. As you sing, notice the three different levels of the Lord's kingdom, personal, congregational, and universal. I love thy kingdom, Lord. Please stand as you sing, 353.
Father in heaven, we thank you that we are part of the kingdom, and part of our responsibility is to support the work of this church and to support the cause of missions throughout this nation and throughout the world. We pray you bless those who are able, able to give this morning, and may this offering be used to your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Maybe Lord receive that offering. I prepare to pronounce the benediction. I invite you back tonight. It is 6 o'clock, right? 6 o'clock evening service. No objections to that. We're going to be, uh, the message will be on the parable of the, of the laborers in the vineyard. Some important truths to come out of that passage. Until then, until the next time we might meet, may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all now and ever. Amen. Amen.